Preaching this morning is Paul Ramsey, one of our pastors uh, from John 15. Um, Hear the word of the Lord. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Peace be with you. My name is Paul Ramsey. As Brandon said, uh, I am one of the pastors here at Sojourn, uh, and it is wonderful to see you all this morning. Uh, it's a joy to be with you, to be preaching from, God, from God's Word for us this morning. Uh, happy Mother's Day. Uh, happy Mother's Day to my wife and my mother, the two most important mothers in my life. Um, I love that in our culture we're given a day each year to celebrate mothers uniquely. Uh, in a unique way. If you've been, I I know Brandon mentioned something at the beginning, uh, but I just want to kind of follow up and say a little bit more. If you've been at Sojourn for any time and you've been with us for previous Mother's Days, uh, you'll know that while we, of course, want to celebrate the mothers in our lives without reservation, we also want to celebrate with great care. Mother's Day is a painful day for many, and we don't want our celebration of Mother's Day to compound that pain in any way as the church has unfortunately so often done. One of the effects of living in a fallen world, uh, according to the earliest chapters of the Bible, is something that God called pain in childbearing in a way that is uniquely carried by women. And while this pain certainly encompasses pregnancy and delivery itself, it also encompasses a much larger swath of details of, of being a mother, battling infertility, miscarriage, or the fragility of newborn and sometimes end of newborn lives. Complications in physical, emotional, relational health during pregnancy, after pregnancy, the unfortunate effect of our culture of comparison on mothers uh, who are tempted through nearly every media stream, even in the church, to compare themselves with one another. And later on in life, the struggle that it is to raise children and walk with them through adolescence to adulthood and stay connected to them. It's often also a two-way street. There are people who suffer childhood trauma and abandonment at the hand of their mothers, or people whose families were torn apart by a justice system which unfairly punishes the poor. So while childbearing is an undeniable blessing and certainly something to celebrate, it's also due to life in a fallen world, a source of great pain for many. And for many of you, the pain that you've experienced or that you're experiencing this year may lead you to be in a place where even hearing Happy Mother's Day makes you want to stand up and walk out of the room. 
My wife shared a post with me yesterday in which the writer ended with these words. She said, if I called the shots, Mother's Day would begin at 1 p.m. on Sunday and not a minute before. Celebrate after church or don't. Church could remain a place where everyone experiences the love of God and the security of belonging, regardless of their history. Brothers, sisters, friends, I want Sojourn to be a place where everyone can experience the love of God and the security of belonging in a way that is not rendered inordinately difficult by careless words and thoughtless celebrations. And so as we celebrate Mother's Day, I do want to look at all of you who are mothers and say, we are so grateful for you. I'm so grateful to know you, to watch your faith, faithful service, um, your love for the people that God has given you to care for. And I also want to say to those of you for whom this day is painful, whether you're a mother or not, I'm so sorry for your pain. I want you to know that our God is a God of comfort, that he sees you and that he's inviting you near even today, like he does every day. I also want you to know that you have, parish, uh, you have pastors, parish leaders, members at this church who would love to hear your story, all of it, when you're ready to share with it so that we can mourn with you as Jesus taught us to and so that you don't have to sit in your pain alone. So pick up the phone and call, whether that's today, next week, next year, whenever you're ready. We promise to listen and to care and to be very slow to speak. With that said, as we transition over to the sermon, uh, in the weeks since Easter, we've been celebrating Eastertide, which is the 50 days between Easter and Pentecost, which we'll be celebrating two Sundays from now. And for our sermons, we've been walking during Eastertide through a selection of passages from the book of John, looking at the person and the ministry of Jesus in a particular way. Uh, as you just heard Brandon read for us, the text that I'm preaching for us is John chapter 15, verses 9 through 17. And my plan for this morning is this. First, we're going to look at the passage, pull out some observations and see, I think, the clear call of this text. Second, we're going to look at why the kind of love that we're called to here is so hard for us. And then third, and finally, briefly, we're going to look at the glory of being a people marked by this kind of love. So let's jump in. Last week, Brandon preached for us on verses 1 through 8 of chapter 15. And the image that we're given at the beginning of chapter 15 is that of a vine with its branches, where Jesus describes being connected with him as being like branches that are connected to a vine, uh, finding in that vine a source of nourishment uh, and life and the ability to bear much fruit. When we come to verse 9, which is the first verse in our passage, Jesus leaves the agricultural analogy for just a moment because it can't contain everything that he wants to communicate. What Jesus wants to communicate in our passage is the intimate love that he, the vine, has for us, the branches. And as I say that out loud, you can tell why he takes a break from the metaphor. I think it's safe to say that while vines provide life for their branches, vines don't love their branches. The love that Jesus wants to communicate here is, in the words of one commentator, a love whose only adequate analogy is the love of the Father to the Son. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And now besides it being, of course, perfectly appropriate for Jesus to tell his disciples of his love for them as frequently and as often as he would like, there's also a contextual, an important contextual reason why he does it right here in John chapter 15. And so let's look for a moment at the context of what's been going on in the Gospel of John. We're in John's account of what's called Jesus's farewell discourse. All of what's recorded in John chapter 13 through John chapter 17 takes place on Thursday night, the night that Jesus is betrayed before he's handed off to be crucified and killed on Friday. 
And so these words are the last teaching that John records for us that Jesus gives to his disciples before his death. The beginning of this farewell discourse is in chapter 13, like I just said, right after Judas leaves to betray him. And here's what Jesus says, beginning in verse 31 of John chapter 13. He says, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So in those opening words, Jesus sets the tone really for the entire farewell discourse. He tells his disciples that his time has come. Right, that he's not gonna be with them for very much longer. And then he gives them what he calls a new commandment, verse 34. He says, love one another just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. So Jesus is preparing for his death and his disciples are clearly troubled by what he says. Peter, almost immediately after Jesus says these words, says, come on, Jesus, why can't, you follow, why, why can't we follow you now? That's my paraphrase. And so Jesus begins chapter 14 by saying, let not your hearts be troubled. He goes on to reassure them that he's gonna come back, that he's going to send the Holy Spirit to be their helper in their time of need. And then here in chapter 15, he gives this analogy of the vine and the branches, talking about the sustaining life-giving uh, nutrients and water that a, branch, or that a vine can give to its branches to tell them that if you're plugged into me, you will have the resources needed to bear much fruit. And then, that brings us to our passage in which he zooms in on his love and instructs his disciples to abide, that is to remain. Brandon talked about that word last week. To abide means to remain in his love. And here's what Jesus is doing in our passage. He's doing at least three things. First, Jesus is disclosing to us. He's explaining a glorious mystery that God's relationship with humanity is not one of utility, but one of love. God's relationship with humanity is not one of utility as though he sees the good things that we can do for him and that's why he loves us, but one of love for love's sake. He loves us because he loves us. And this was so different from any other ancient religion. Right? The gods in these religions were to be pleased and placated, fed, satisfied. You were to pour out your sacrifices to them and if you did just enough sacrifices in just the right way, paired with just the right kind of life, then maybe you could affect enough favor with the gods for them to give you the blessing that you're asking them for. Here, Jesus speaks quite differently. He speaks about a God who loves his people. God is not a fickle deity in need of being appeased. He is a father who loves his children, who is delighted to pour out blessing on them. He uses another analogy to illustrate this. He says, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. And of course, the father loves his disciples too. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. There's many other examples of that. But Jesus here is using his own relationship with his father to lift up our hearts to see the kind of love with which we are loved, that of a son being loved by his father. As John Calvin put it, it was Christ's purpose in this text to deposit in our laps a sure pledge of God's love toward us. Let us therefore fix our eyes on Christ because it's in him that we see the pledge of God's love clearly exhibited. So the first thing that Jesus does in this passage is he 
discloses the glorious mystery of God's love for us. The second thing Jesus does here is this. He calls us to action. He says, after saying, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you, he says, abide in my love. Abide means remain. And how are they to do that? Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So how do you abide? You keep his commandments. And what are the commandments they were to keep? Verse 12, Jesus turns the plural into a singular. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And you might recognize this. I just read a passage from John 13 at the beginning of the farewell discourse. And this is almost a direct quote from that passage. Jesus said it right at the beginning. And it's almost as if the whole farewell discourse up to this point has been building to this point where he says, this is what it's about. And just as he did with God's love, relating God's love for us with the love of the father for the son, he's using the example of his obedience to the father to illustrate for his disciples what remaining in the love of God looks like. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept the father's commandments and abide in his love. He'd said something similar in John 14. He said, I do as the father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the father. Here's what Jesus is doing in this analogy. He's essentially saying, I've kept my father's commandments and that is how I've been able to remain in his love, to abide in his love. So it is with you. If you keep my commandments, that is if you love one another, that is how you will remain in my love. And what he's doing here isn't complicated. He isn't introducing a reductionist view of love thy neighbor as though that's all you need. All you need, just scrap all the, other, the rest of the Bible, just love your neighbor, that's all you need to do. Instead, he's been very simply and logically connecting a chain that's been running through this section of John. As one theologian puts it very clearly, Jesus' point is not that love for fellow believers exempts one from the call to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, but the genuine love for God ensures genuine love for his son. That genuine love for the son ensures obedience to the son. That obedience to him is especially tested by obedience to the new commandment, the command to love. And so by this unbreakable chain, love for God is tied to and verified by love for other believers. As John writes later in the New Testament, in the letter of 1 John chapter 4, he says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And what is Jesus's point here? He's saying, the time has come. Very soon, I will not be with you anymore. But you will still have access to my love. Even when I'm gone, it is in loving one another that you will abide in my love, that you will continue to experience and be nourished by my love. That's the second thing that Jesus does in this passage. He calls his disciples to action. They're troubled. And he says, rather than sitting and feeling sorry for yourselves, given my imminent death, rather than waiting for God to make you feel better or for someone else to fix things, you stand up, go find one another and love. Go love one another. That is where you will see and experience my love. 
And then the third thing Jesus does here is this. He's tell, he tells them that all of this, all that he has spoken is for their joy. Up until now in the vine image, this might sound like a painful life. Right? He has spoken, Brandon mentioned uh, the verse where he speaks about pruning the branches, which hurts. The kind of love and obedience that Jesus talks about in this passage, in verse 13, Jesus goes on to explain the kind of love, which with, their to love excuse me, with which they're supposed to love one another. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Say, laying down my life for my friends, that's a, that's a pretty tall ask, Jesus. And so that this kind of obedience that Jesus is talking about doesn't begin to seem joyless and bleak, Jesus says, verse 11, These things I have spoken to you that my joy might be in you and that your joy may be full, complete. So rather than being a side note attacked onto this teaching, oh yeah, by the way, you're gonna get joy too. Jesus says, this is the foundational reason. These things I have spoken so that you may have my joy. It's so that their joy may be complete. That's why he's spoken these things in the first place. In other words, if you're trying to do these things on your own, if you're trying to heed the commands of Jesus to love your neighbor without being plugged into the vine, then you, are, you, you have consigned yourself to a life free of delight, a life of exhaustion, of bitterness, of frustration. But if you're abiding in the vine, the purpose of abiding in the vine is to provide the sense of delight to authentic disciples of Jesus, even though they may face pain and persecution. The joy that can be found in and from the world around us is at best temporary. Full joy can only be found in Jesus. As one commentator put it, human joy in a fallen world is incomplete until human existence is overtaken by an experience of the love of God in Christ Jesus, the love for which we were created, a mutual love that issues in obedience without reserve. This is where true, true joy comes from, abiding in Jesus's love. And so you see what he's doing in this passage. Jesus is showing his love for us. He's instructing us to love one another as a reflection of this love, as an outworking of this love. Love for God and love for one another go hand in hand. As the father loves the son, the son loves the disciples and the disciples love one another. That is how we abide in the love of Jesus. And that is where we find fullness of joy, experiencing the love of Jesus through our loving of one another. And so when talking about abiding in the vine and remaining in his love, he then gives this very practical, wonderfully practical instruction for what that actually means. He points them to each other and says, that's what I'm talking about. We don't have to sit in our ivory tower and philosophize about what abiding in the vine means. He says, go find brothers and sisters and love them. That's what, it, that's what I'm talking about. And why does he do this? He knows that when he leaves them, his disciples are going to face doubts, fears, insecurities, persecution. And when facing trials and doubts, the last thing you want to do is isolate yourself and struggle with them alone. I've heard many people say that abiding in the vine means getting alone with God, reading your Bible, memorizing scripture, meditating on it, praying. These are all, of course, wonderfully important ingredients in the Christian life. But that's not what Jesus talks about here. That's not what he points to here. Leading up to this point in his ministry, Jesus has talked a lot about what love looks like, what it means to depend on God, what it means to follow him. And then here at the heart of his final teaching in the gospel of John, he says to them, verse 12, this is my commandment 
that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. Think of the person who's wrestling with doubt, who's feeling abandoned by God, who's feeling abandoned by Jesus, and they reach out to God with a last resort request, God, just tell me what to do. I'm at the end of my rope. What does God say? Does he say, you need to go read your Bible more? That's your problem. Uh, Prayer has become too infrequent. That's your problem. That's not what he says. Does he say, go sit on social media and read blogs written by people who are also struggling like you are? That's not what he says. He says, I've spoken these things to you so that your joy may be full. Go and love one another as I have loved you. Lay down your life for the people around you. Perhaps think of it this way. Here's an analogy. Think of a friendship that you have with someone that is on the rocks, not necessarily due to conflict, just due to um, a lack of interest or distraction or wondering whether they even want to spend time with you anymore. Picture a marriage that has just exited the honeymoon phase, that the early on you can do no wrong infatuation phase has just worn off and the falling sensation that was so exciting at the beginning is no longer there. Picture a friendship that has started to feel kind of monotonous. You always do the same things together. You talk about the same things and you're struggling to feel like you want to hang out with them as much as you used to. Picture a life with your parish sojourn where things used to feel so intimate and vibrant for you, where your faith was being nourished, you were being encouraged, you were encouraging others, but somehow things have changed. The dynamic has shifted and now you feel like attending your parish gatherings is more like a chore than a joy to you. While you could do any number of things when faced with these hypotheticals, really all of your options fall into one of two categories. Category one, you could do nothing and wait for someone else to fix them. Category two, you could go and pursue change yourself. So you could do nothing in that area or you could wait for others, excuse me, you could do nothing in that area, wait for others to get with the picture, wait for others to pursue you, for others to fix their problems or With your spouse, you could think creatively about something you could do together. You could book a babysitter for Thursday night and ask your husband to pick the restaurant. You could buy a couple of nosebleed flights on Spirit to the cheapest city you can find. You could probably get a $60 round trip and go find the dumpiest diner to eat breakfast at just for fun. With your friend, you could pick a book and ask your friend if they want to read that book with you. You could pick a date a couple of months out to give time to plan for absence and go on a hiking trip with a friend who you haven't had one-on-one time with in a while. With your parish, you could devote yourself to just asking really good questions, picking one or two people at the next parish gathering to just ask questions, really listen uh, to how they're doing, and then pray for them that next week. Perhaps even reach out to them a time or two uh, to let them know that you're praying for them or to keep catching up. And then do that the next week and the next week and make that your habit your pattern of engaging with people in your parish. I give those examples as I think an appropriate analogy. Now, what if the relationship is your friendship with Jesus? What if that has grown lukewarm or distant? What if you're doubting the things that he said or if he's even there or worth following? What if you're wrestling with the people around you who say that they're following Jesus, but you're more annoyed at them than grateful for them? Jesus' guidance here is incredibly helpful. There are some passages in the Bible that are really complicated to understand. This isn't one of them. Jesus says, abide in my love by keeping this commandment, love one another as I have loved you. He's not being opaque. 
as if we're meant to wrestle with this. Gosh, what does it mean to love one another? I can't get it. There are places in the Bible where that is my sentiment, but not here. His thought process is easy to follow. When you're faced with doubts, trials, with relational distance between you and others, between you and God, here's the answer. Verse nine, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you, abide in my love. How do we abide in his love? Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. What are his commandments? Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another. Friends, do you wanna know why we talk so much here at Sojourn about the one another's of scripture, about life in community with one another. It is this teaching of Jesus, which appears time and again throughout his teaching ministry that the apostles after him later in the New Testament continue to build on. It is in our love for one another that we will be a community that sees, knows, and experiences Jesus afresh together day by day. It is this kind of community abiding in the love of Jesus that will put the love of God on display before a watching world. When we come to this teaching though, we're faced with a problem. In our world, there are many who use the word love differently than Jesus uses the word love in this passage. He doesn't say abide in love in general. He says abide in my love. Many say God is love, and then they give a definition of love that doesn't include God as he has revealed himself through his word. And then those people often turn around and impose that view of love on God, often concluding either that the God of the Bible is a hypocrite or that large chunks, if not the whole thing, is good to be tossed out because it's just an ancient relic of a distant past. The love that we want to see in the Bible isn't there. And listen, we should remember that Christians don't have a monopoly on love. I know that love certainly exists outside the church, outside of Christianity. Neither of my parents are Christians. And I both know and feel and experience their deep love for me. I have loving friendships with a number, with a number of friends who are not Christians. I watch plenty of acts of love, kindness, sacrifice that are done by people who are not Christians. And the Bible doesn't ever attack the love of those outside of God's people whether Israel in the Old Testament or the church in the New Testament and say, that's not love, as if the problem is the label. The Bible does paint a pretty clear picture that the problem humanity faces is a problem of love. When humanity fell into sin, perhaps one of the greatest negative effects of the fall into sin was that the lover in every human being broke. Rather than loving God and others and loving what is good and true, Ever since the fall, we instead naturally love ourselves. We love what is false and what is wicked, what is out of line with the truth as God revealed it. You see, the problem is not that what Jesus is talking about here is love and all of the other things that the culture calls love are not real love. Indeed, the problem with all of those other loves is that they are love that is just misplaced. To those who aren't Christians, Jesus is not saying you need to go from not loving things to truly loving things. Instead, Jesus is saying, I'm inviting you to see me and my love for you in a way that you go from loving the wrong things to loving the right things. Or to put it slightly differently, rather than loving yourself through pursuing all of these subsidiary loves, look at all that I have done for you out of love for you. And in return, simply love me 
which will in turn overflow into love for others. And then all other things, all other loves will flow perfectly into their place as you begin to have a rightly ordered system of love. You see, you will always love things. Jesus says, when I'm no longer with you, there will be many things that call for your love that threaten to pull you away from my love. Money, power, pleasure, security, food, you name it. What you need to do is abide in my love. Remain in my love. That is what will keep you fast. That is where you will find fullness of joy. That is where you will be kept on the straight and narrow, as some say, rather than giving yourself to worthless things. And you may say, but that's not fair. Come on. There's much in the world that isn't worthless. I know people who aren't Christians who give money generously, who adopt orphans, who pour out their lives for good causes. What Jesus would say is, yes, I love all of those things, but you're missing the point. You're missing me. Don't just abide, don't just abide in love out there in general, abide in my love. I care about all of those things more than you ever will. And by no means am I saying that those things cannot be a part of your life as you follow me, but until you have me, you will be doing these right things for the wrong reasons. And your reasons matter deeply to me because ultimately it's not actually about those reasons. It's about relationship. And this is where the real problem with Christianity is. This is where every human heart has a problem with Christianity. It's that it's so personal. It's not merely a philosophy or a set of moral teachings. It's not merely a way to get your best life now. It is primarily a relationship, a relationship of love. Look at verse 14. Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. In verse 15, he says, no longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Jesus is talking about a friendship with God. What Jesus is getting at here in contrasting between slaves and friends is an idea that is connected with the theme of knowing that comes up throughout the book of John. Here's what I mean by that. Slaves don't need to understand why they are doing things. Slaves are to obey without explanation from their master. The friends of Jesus, on the other hand, are real partners. They are let into the divine counsel of God. All that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. So rather than being regarded as mere slaves, they have been given an understanding that comes from a totally different relationship, a relationship that is based upon knowing God personally, knowing the purposes behind why God sent Jesus for us. Jesus has been harping on this throughout his ministry. I'm not talking in the nagging sense, I'm using that in the musical sense. It's as though it's a song with repeated refrain after refrain. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I am the gate, I am the door to relationship with God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. His focus is relational, it's deeply personal. Look at verse 16 in our passage. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Jesus didn't make a general call as if to say, all right guys, here's my teaching. And here's my life, my demonstration of love for the world. And now it's up to you to decide what to do with it. As if he were presenting another philosophy of the good life. 
No, Jesus says here, he says, I didn't, he says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. He's speaking to a specific group of people. He's speaking to his disciples, each of which were told earlier in the gospel of John, he approaches and calls by name and invites to follow him. Back in chapter 10, when Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd of the sheep, he says, verse three, the, the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And then verse 27 of chapter 10, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. This isn't anything new that Jesus is saying. He's picking up on language that appears throughout the Old Testament. One example, Isaiah chapter 43, fear not for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. The relationship Jesus talks about extending to us in which we are to abide in his love is deeply personal. And here's why that's such a problem. As Tim Keller once put it, the moment you allow yourself to come into real relationship with somebody is the moment you begin to lose control of your life. Because in a truly loving relationship, you have to be let in on their terms. Tim Keller gives an example of a football player. Picture a star football player. He's the quarterback of the team. It's his senior year. All the girls are fawning over him. He's popular. Everyone knows his name. He's going to be the number one draft pick when he gets, or whatever. I don't know. I'm mixing. We'll call him a senior in college. And then he, you know, everyone knows him. And then he, and then he lays eyes on a girl and he falls head over heels for her. And he goes up and he says, hi, what's your name? And he says, do you know who I am? She says, no, what's your name? She's like, okay. You know, most people know who I am, but that's okay. I'm so-and-so. And then he says, do you know, are you, have you been following the football season? We've been having a great year. She says, I, I, don't, I don't know much about football. She didn't know a touchdown from a field, you know, from a field goal, from a basket in basketball, from a home run. She liked books. Now, what do you think he did when he encountered this problem? He had never encountered it before. Do you think he went and said, you know what? I'm, I'm going to go get a book. He goes to buy a book on football. There you go. Now you can learn football. You can learn what you need to know about me so you can respect me appropriately. <laughs> no, that's not what he does. He picks up a book that she likes. He starts to read. He starts to learn to love the things that she loves. You see the point. He becomes vulnerable. He becomes open to being corrected hurt, pruned, changed. C.S. Lewis put it this way. This is a famous quote from The Four Loves. He said, there is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. You see, the moment you enter into any real relationship with anyone, you open yourself up to vulnerability. You open yourself up to be hurt, you lose control. And that's often painful. But so it is with Jesus. His ways are not your ways. You can't throw him a pile of your books and say, here's how you can love me, Jesus. 
his invitation is to you to follow him. And following him is nothing short of a death to yourself. He describes it as taking up your cross and following him on the road to crucifixion. And so how are we to do it? Look back at verses 12 and 13. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. In verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. There's three things he says there to tie these these three things together. A man laying down his life for his friends, them being his friends, him having chosen them. As Jesus says these words to his disciples, he knows that he is about to take the cross for his friends. Not because they deserve it, but precisely because they don't deserve it. And this is a kind of friendship that we don't know anything about. In our world, for so much of us, friendship is conditional. As long as this relationship is giving me what I want and need, as long as I'm being satisfied, I'm in this. But with Jesus, in this model of true friendship, we see quite the opposite. It was for the sake of people who are getting ready to deny and abandon him. People in the crowds who are mocking him, spitting at him, abusing him. It was while we were yet enemies, as the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, that Jesus took the cross and died for us. In some of his final breaths, one of the last things he said was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What kind of love is this? It's the kind of love that comes from heaven. It's the kind of love that turns enemies into friends. It's the kind of love that repays cursing with blessing, that enables us to turn the other cheek, that turns the world upside down as it brings in a new creation. And so how do we get this kind of love? We look to Jesus Christ who didn't disassociate with us when we went astray, who didn't abandon us when he had every reason to. Even while we were sinners, before we did anything good to merit his love for us, he chose us, he set his love upon us, he numbered us among his friends, and then he took the cross to die for his friends. Greater love knows no one than this. He's given us this love. He sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts so that we might receive it and love him in return. And that's the kind of friendship that he calls us to. Sojourn. Here is the glory of being a people marked by this kind of love. This is the kind of friendship that the world so desperately needs. This love, this love of Jesus is the kind of love that will change the world. In a world in which loneliness is rampant and is only increasing, in which all of us are looking for friendship, this is what we have been looking for. This is what the world is looking for a friend who pursues us, who is quick to forgive, who knows everything about us and loves us the same, who would spare no cost for the sake of our health and our care. This is who Jesus is. And this is who loving Jesus causes you and me to be to one another, to our friends, to people we haven't even met yet. How would your experience here at Sojourn change as a single person, as a mother of young children, as a recent retiree with more time on your hands that you know what to do with? If you were in a parish filled with people abiding in the love of Jesus like this, 
Or perhaps more importantly, how would your experience change if you were abiding more fully in the love of Jesus like this? Setting aside your interests and laying down your life, not just for the people you want to do it for, but for everyone God brings, God brings into your path. This is the invitation. Hear the words of Jesus. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. And for these, your words, which you have given to us to meditate on for a few minutes together this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill this room, fill our hearts and preach the better sermon than the one that I just preached. Write into our hearts the truth of the gospel, the truth of your love for us. Give us the resources that we need to bear much fruit that endures, that abides. Lord, I pray that you would make us the kind of church that takes Paul's words in Philippians 2, look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And we take it for what it was meant to mean. And we, I, I pray that you would protect us from the common tendency to flip that on its head and sit around wondering why others are not worried about our interests. I pray that you would put that to death in us and that you would help us to actually set aside our interests, set aside our rights, care for the interests of others, care for the rights of others, fight for them. Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk in your footsteps, laying down our lives for our friends. In a culture in which enemies are so quickly named and numbered, I pray that you would make us a people whose love which is abiding in your love, turns enemies to friends. Won't you do that, Lord, for your glory and for the good of the world, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.